0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: In London, this is The Economist. I'm John Prido, the US editor. You're listening to a special edition of Tasting Menu. Today in this podcast, I'm going to be talking to David Rennie, who has spent five years as The Economist Lexington columnist. He recently published his 244th Lexington column. I thought this would be a good opportunity to ask him a few questions about what makes a good column, ask him to reflect a little bit on how American politics has changed in the time he's been covering it, so David, let's kick off. At the beginning of your valedictory column, you refer to a photograph of your father, which sits above your desk. And when you sent me the column, that grabbed my attention, partly because as a writer, you tend not to bring yourself into your work very much. And this was a, this was a different kind of column. So can you begin by explaining to people who haven't read the column yet, the significance of this photograph?
0: Yeah, I, I thought long and hard about whether I should make it that personal. But I wanted to explain why for a lot of readers of The Economist and journalists at The Economist, the, the state of politics in America couldn't be more important. And it's not just for Americans, it's for the whole world. And you know, I was raised from the very earliest days with stories of my father living in America in the 1930s, the 1940s, uh, the 1950s and 60s. He was a British diplomat. He spent a tremendous amount of time. But he also spent World War II in New York as a very young man working for an arm of the British government, which was basically a kind of propaganda arm of Britain, trying to persuade America to join World War II on the side of the British. And the thing that I learned with my kind of mother's milk was that when America is on your side, things go well, but that America, not unreasonably, needs to be persuaded sometimes to leave the safety of that giant continent and to go into the world and be the kind of the leader of the free world. And so that ambiguity about America as the most powerful friend you can have, but a country that doesn't automatically want to take up that burden of leadership I grew up with. And I think that watching Donald Trump using phrases like America first, America first, America first, America first. has really resonated with me because, you know, the original America first committee, which was that isolationist body campaigning to keep America out of World War II, that was precisely the people that my father as a young man in New York was fighting. And your father,
1: I'm going to reveal for the purposes of this podcast, though people can find this by looking up on Wikipedia, he then went on to run MI6. So he was an extremely distinguished public servant. You have a sort of insider outsider relationship with America, don't you? I mean, your children were born there. This trip for The Economist was actually has been your sort of second tour of duty, if you like, in the US. You've been looking at American politics close up since the second Gulf War, since about 2003, is that right?
0: That's right. I arrived in 2002 and I spent eight, nine years of my life in America, which is longer than anywhere else apart from Britain. I think what's been an amazing privilege working for The Economist and writing a column for The Economist is that, you know, I speak as, you know, you're my boss on this. You let me get out of the beltway and get out of the bubble. And we were doing that, I hope, before Trump's rise made people realize that you could not cover American politics and what was happening in American politics from your desk in Washington. That if you're not out there in the country at large uh, talking to people, then you're not doing your job properly. The, the, The flip side of that is America is an amazingly good place to do that kind of journalism because people are amazingly willing to tell you what they think. You can go up to someone who really, really dislikes the international press and who dislikes a lot of the things that we stand for and you can say you know tell me what you just voted and why did you just vote and, and they will mostly tell you and and we'll have a kind of really so sort of candid conversation so that That's a tremendous privilege. Yeah, I would say one of the things
1: as your editor that distinguishes you as a columnist from all the other columnists I read is you have an an allergy, I can only put it as It's a really strong aversion to staying in Washington and writing the column about the thing that everyone's talking about this week. Most of our conversations about your writing, you've often been in some sort of Obscure airport, and it's kind of four in the morning, and uh, the amount of miles you how many states have you have you
0: been to? Lexington took me to thirty eight states. I've been to forty six over all of the years I've been here. I mean I think in some ways, Donald Trump has made journalism better in that way for everyone. I think that when I first covered American politics, I mean I covered, Uh, one of the most boring elections in in modern history, which was the 2004 presidential election, which was John Kerry versus George W. Bush's re-election. And, you know, uh, American presidential elections, they're like pizza, you know, even when it's bad, it's okay. But it was was not a classic vintage uh, election. To be honest, 2012, which I also covered, was not a great vintage it was kind of Hawaiian sort of tepid Hawaiian of an election. <laughs> there was a bit of pineapple lurking among the cheese that's right and I think at that point when there was a kind of Groundhog Day feel to some of the campaign arguments about you know tax rates and things like that particularly 2012 I guess because it wasn't a war election you could see a sort of phenomenon that the American political daily journalism often resembled kind of watching small boys playing soccer you know everyone chases the ball around in a kind of V-shaped formation shouting, to me, to me, to me. And wherever the ball is, that's where everyone is. Because, you know, there was the daily news, you know, the gaffe that Mitt Romney had just made and everyone was following that. Within 24 hours of touching down, he is now at the center of a firestorm, questioning
1: whether London is ready
0: to host these Olympic games. Uh, my experience as an Olympic organizer is that there are always a few very small things uh, that end up going not quite right in the first day. And there was a sense that the immediate took priority over what was important i think the good and bad thing about donald trump and his rise is i think that you're seeing a lot of journalism having to grapple with the very big questions about wow people think things that we didn't realize that many people believed we knew people were angry we didn't know just how angry they were we knew that voters were willing to take a risk on an outsider but boy they really are And so I think that his rise for good and ill has forced a lot of journalists to to think from kind of first principles, just how did this country get into this very divided state? So, David, let's talk about some of the places you've
1: been to while writing this column about politics. I have to say, as... An editor and a reader, some of my favorite columns you've written haven't ostensibly been about politics at all. I remember one a wonderful one you did from Wyoming about rodeo. And I remember, you know, the first few paragraphs thinking, huh, this is not ostensibly a politics column. And yet it turned out that it was. Can you talk a little bit about your method? You know, how you found some of your subjects and how things that don't, on the face of it, look like they're all about politics often turn out to be political.
0: Yeah, I think that there's politics in all kinds of unexpected places. And I went to Cody, Wyoming, to look at the big famous rodeo they have there. Because rodeo is a sport with a very strong sense of a kind of honour culture. If you think that American individualism and rugged individualism and kind of self-reliance is an important element in the, particularly the conservative American mindset, and I think it is. Rodeo turns out to be a surprisingly good place to see that, because professional rodeo cowboys, uh, which is a small and uh, pretty tough bunch, they go from rodeo to rodeo and they put themselves through astonishing physical pain and damage for not very much money, and they have a very short season every year when they can make that money. Actually, the local senator, uh, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, uh, in pre-political life was an orthopedic surgeon with a rodeo doctor's license. And he said to me once uh, when I interviewed him in the Senate, if you come to Cody in the rodeo season, I'll take you down into the chutes to meet the cowboys and, and meet the animals. And that was the most interesting bit. So Senator Barrasso took me down and I met his successors, these rodeo doctors. And those were guys coming in with the kind of injuries that if you and I fell off a ladder at the weekend and bust our shoulder and dislocated an elbow and the stuff that they were doing to themselves you know that would be a major crisis that would put us off work for a week and then we'd be kind of grumbling about it for six weeks and,
1: I'd be expecting a lot of sympathy at that point
0: yeah these guys they dislocate their shoulders they come in they go I dislocated my shoulder can you shove it back in for me because I've got to drive 9 hours to the next rodeo and It's really interesting that the rodeo is also a business. It's a big business in these places, and it's had to adapt. It's had to change the way that it operates. It's had to get much more savvy about television. It's had to get much more savvy about how it markets itself. And so I used rodeo as a kind of an example of how this originally amateur, very conservative American culture has learned to adapt whilst trying to kind of capture the essence of itself. So in the old days, the fucking broncos that a cowboy would ride on and get thrown off. They were just kind of mean horses that farmers had and they thought, I'm never going to get to use this horse, I'll make it a rodeo horse. Now it's like a giant multi-million dollar industry to breed horses and bulls specifically for rodeo because it's a big, big thing, particularly with TV rights. But they've tried to capture the essence of what really matters to them. And what really mattered to them, it turned out, was the kind of moral code, the self-reliance, the comradeship between these cowboys who having competed against each other then share a car and drive the next rodeo so i use that as an example of a healthy conservative response to change i also on a side note got to meet dick cheney the former vice president whose granddaughter is a rodeo
1: she's a barrel rider wasn't she she she's a barrel
0: racer yeah where they these these amazing plucky girls ride these ponies at very high speed in a kind of figure of eight round oil barrels. And it was as a result that I found myself standing in a very nice walled garden outside a bar in Cody, Wyoming, talking to the former Vice President Dick Cheney, who was talking in turn to Miss Rodeo America, who was wearing Stars and Stripes cowboy boots and a Stars and Stripes spangly cowboy shirt and a big Stetson hat about the merits of the rodeo world and how Dick Cheney liked the the kids who were in it. And he thought it was all very good for his granddaughter. And he, he actually drives the truck with the horse box on the back, and he's a he's a kind of rodeo granddad. That was a memorable afternoon.
1: Up city streets, down country roads, I can get you where you need to go, i I'm a country boy. So you spend a lot of time looking you know, looking hard for interesting stories within America that make you think and look at politics in a different way. But you also spend a lot of time looking at other countries and you have a certain advantage there And You've written a column from Britain for The Economist, a column from Brussels about European politics. You spent time in Beijing writing about China. And so I suppose if one of your themes has been finding often obscure stories in America that illustrate some interesting political point and give readers a kind of insight into what's really going on in American politics, another has been to look at American exceptionalism, but also the extent to which things that are going on in American politics right now are also going on in other advanced Western democracies.
0: That's right. And and one of the big themes, you know, I mean, you, you saw some very close advisors to Donald Trump, like uh, his former campaign boss, Steve Bannon, who was then his chief strategist, drawing explicit links between things like the vote to leave the European Union in Britain, Brexit, and the populist forces that were driving Donald Trump. And I think there is something to that. Uh, it's very striking that if you have spent the last decade, as I have speaking to voters in the continent of Europe, speaking to them in Britain, speaking to them in the US, the complaints are often really strikingly similar about, I don't feel that I recognise the country anymore, I don't feel that uh, my kids are going to have as good a life as I did. Uh, you know, the jobs were stolen and sent somewhere else. And then what's fascinating is that people are very likely to have a, a local explanation for this. If you take a step back, you think, so everyone is telling me exactly the same thing about how they feel that the American dream has been stolen or the European dream has been stolen or the British dream has been stolen. And this is being said in places with strong welfare states and weak welfare states and strong labor unions and weak labor unions and countries which had conservative governments when the jobs left and countries that had left-wing socialist governments when the jobs left. And that makes you start to think that maybe there are some larger forces to do with just the explosion in competition that we've seen the last 20, 30 years hitting the West. And I've tried to kind of think of a single phrase to bind together all of these things I've been observing for the last decade. And the phrase that I've come up with and used in a column reasonably recently is I think that a lot of voters in a lot of the rich West feel that they want to be protected against competition that they feel is unbearable or unfair. But the problem for mainstream responsible politicians is that they don't know how to give workers or people that protection against competition without tanking the economy. And that creates a vacuum for populist politicians with a kind of magic if only we leave the European Union or if only we you know leave NAFTA, those kind of magic if only solutions resonate because the mainstream politicians are a bit stuck. And that's been one of the really fascinating things of traveling around America going to campaign rallies watching individual senators or House members is how very often they don't really have, solutions to offer to the things that are making their voters unhappy. And what they've focused on instead is coming up with stories about why the other side is to blame. David, one last one. There's a general pessimism,
1: I suppose, about the state of American politics at the moment, you know, about partisanship and polarisation and so forth, all these familiar phrases. Do you think it's worse than it was when you started? Or do you think people you know, misremember even the quite recent past.
0: I think it is worse. It is frighteningly common how often the really partisan voters you meet at rallies will tell you things about how the other side is secretly bringing terrorists into the country or there's, you know, did you know that Barack Obama is, you know, is a Muslim who hates Christians and he said once that his dream was to destroy Christianity in America or something. And you'll say to people, where did you see that? Where do you hear that? And they'll say, oh, I saw it on Facebook that's a real thing. I think that's got much worse. I think the role of social media has got much worse. So I'm pessimistic about the state of politics, not just in America, but also in, in other rich countries. I'm not pessimistic about America. I think that America is still an amazingly energetic, kind country. It's true that people are unkind across that tribal barrier sometimes, but you know, I cannot tell you the patience and the kindness and the hospitality that someone like me foreign guy who looks like Harry Potter, sounds like Harry Potter, turns up in, you know, anywhere in America, people are amazingly generous with their time and willing to kind of talk politics. And that's not true in other places. It's a very young country. And people are hardworking. People work really, really hard in this country. People think you should have to work hard to get ahead. People do not like kind of handouts. They're not waiting for government to fix everything. So in some ways, from the outside, this country is less divided than you might think. There is an American spirit about the individual and hard work and getting ahead. It's just um, the politics that speaks to that spirit, that tries to provide comfort to voters that that can be made to work properly in the way that they feel is appropriate. The politics is not in great shape, but this country, I think, still has a tremendous, tremendous amount going for it.
1: Well, David, thank you so much. Thank you for all your columns. I have to say, as an editor, I mean, all I've ever really had to do is move the occasional comma just to show that I'm alert. You've, You've been a dream. That's it for this week's Tasting Menu. If you have any questions for Lexington, aka David, please send them through to radio at economist.com. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you like our journalism, please do consider subscribing to the newspaper. In London, this is The Economist.
0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.